Um. Okay. Um, welcome to the Sunday Sangha. Glad to see you guys. Uh, we've already been discussing a bit about uh, uh, practice and what it's useful for. And um, Carl, I especially want to say welcome to you. And Ron, you're also an old friend. Uh, and that we had started to talk, Carl, about your not getting anything out of the meditation. And so you stopped doing it. And then uh, at another time, you recognize that right now, during this work time that I'm feeling the anxiety, now is when I need the meditation. Okay. Both of those are actually excellent insights. Because in fact, what you were practicing in meditation was not anything that would get rid of anxiety in this moment. That in fact, um, the inspection of anxiety does not alleviate anxiety. And that often anxiety comes when we have thoughts about what if, uh, referred to as what ifism. Now, there's two kinds of what ifisms. One kind of what ifism is, or what aboutism, would be when you're accused of doing something wrong. And the answer to that would be, well, what about what he did? Because it's wrong, too. And because he did wrong, I can do wrong. Or maybe he did worse and didn't get punished, so I shouldn't be punished. So that's one kind of, uh, of what about ism. And that is uh, the what about ism of the uh, psychopath. It's the what about isms of the politicians and uh, those who are trying to get away with doing wrong deeds. But the other kind of what ifism is the kind that almost everyone else has, including that. I mean, if you do get blamed or you might do the what ifism. Uh, but if you um, are just sitting in okay, and then you start worrying, well, what about if this happens? Or what about that happens? Or maybe I've got to get this done. Or maybe I've got to get that done. And then we don't recognize that that's the source of the anxiety is when we play these what about isms games in our own mind. And that they also, these what about isms, lead to doubt. Doubt and worry and frustrations and all of that kind of stuff. And then piling on, it becomes anxiety and stress. And so um, there's several ways of working with this and one has and and actually the ways of working of it has to do with how quick we can catch it and you observe the pattern happening in real time mm -hmm. right so how slow are we in real time to catch it are you going to be all the way into a full-blown anxiety attack before you recognize, oh, I am behaving recklessly right now because I'm in a full-blown um, attack. Or we can uh, have it when there is a little bit of anxiety. Or in meditation, we can see anxiety as it arises. And then eventually we can be able to see the actual thoughts that help that stuff arise to come up. What, what's the triggers for it? 
And then beyond that, there is uh, based upon our, um, let us say, underlying attitude. And when that begins to change, then our attitudes change. And when our attitudes change, the kind of thoughts we have change. And the kind of thoughts that we have change then don't create the anxiety. So that's kind of the sequence of events that would happen over a long period of time. But really what we're talking about is the teachings of the Buddha. And the teachings of the Buddha is normally referred to as Paticca Samapada or the way that the mind works. Oh, there you are. Now you're back. Your camera keeps cutting in and out. Somebody was trying to call me, so that's why. Yeah. Oh, I see. All right. So, um, basically, the practice has to do with um, the Mahasi method in particular has a particular piece that's missing. And that's the piece that's missing about that stage in their practice before things. Hello, <laughs> Mark. Hello. Hello. Okay, this is Carl, and we're giving him a basic introduction to um, to the practice that he's already been doing. Okay, um, nice to meet you, Carl. And are you Ron? Yeah, nice to meet you, Ron. I'm Marcus. Nice to meet you too. Uh huh. Marcus, your microphone is quite noisy. Oh, okay, okay. All right. So. Uh, Yes, lots of uh, air noise. And I would think that a big, fancy, expensive microphone like that wouldn't have a lot of wind and air noise. So yeah, I have to turn the gain right up because the preamp is so small. Oh, you've got a preamp running. That's why you've got such high volume. Yes, I got it. Okay, so. Um, getting back to what we were speaking on. The Mahasi method looks at what's going on and keeps noting and keeps seeing what's going on. And the students will say, well, what do I look for? And the student and the teacher will say, well, you just look at what's going on, right? That's the normal way that it started. Right? But that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The teaching of the Buddha is the Four Noble Truths, most specifically Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, which means to see the problem to see the anxiety to see the worries to see whatever it is that's in the mind right now and then change it from unwholesome to wholesome immediately to do it right then and there that's the real teaching of the buddha and that this teaching is actually seen in the suttas in many cases uh referred to as the hindrances that the first thing we have to do is remove the hindrances have you ever heard that yeah, yeah. All right. Well, how do we remove the hindrances? The way that we remove the hindrances is by putting in a new thought to not let those hindrances put us into a state of anxiety. We're going to have the kind of thoughts that are going to put us in a state of peace and relaxation. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, since since I've been actually been noting and then putting in a positive thought, the negative thoughts actually stop coming back as often as they would have before and it only took me like two days or three days of this practice because i already was so good at noting things 
that I didn't need to focus on noting so much. I just needed it to replace the noting with something else as well, like add an extra layer right. to it. That's that added ingredient that's right there on the Eightfold Noble Path, the right effort. And what is one's right effort? To remove unwholesome thoughts and to replace them with wholesome thoughts. To remove the thoughts that lead to dukkha, to, uh, to remove the thoughts that have to do with danger. And those thoughts of what if isms are actually looking at all the things that could go wrong. And when we're looking at all the things that could go wrong in the mind, in the mind, they are going wrong. And that's the source of the fear. Oh, no, I'm creating danger. I'm thinking about dangerous things. And so I feel danger. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? That we actually talk ourselves into anxiety, which means now that we can talk ourselves out of it. In fact, a better way of saying it even is, is that you've been spending your whole life talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to start talking yourself into feeling good. That's the change. And that needs to be practiced. But really what is being practiced is to remember to look and to change. To remember to look and to change over and over and over again, to remember to look and to change. These three items are actually on the Eightfold Noble Path. Sati is to remember. Um, right view is actually not a viewpoint, it's a viewing. So wake up and look at what's going on and then make a change. All right. Have you ever heard the expression, wake up and smell the coffee? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what are you going to do immediately after you smell the coffee? Take a sip. Ah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Now, that whole statement of wake up and smell the coffee is actually a um, uh, a specific way of stating anapanasati as a practice to wake up, smell, which means to take an inhale, to take a deep breath. And to be in your sensory awareness, in this case, the odor, and then in a, uh, a moment later into taste, but these are waking up and being in sensual awareness. And so this is much of the practice, uh, in fact, is that let's get out of our heads and get into our sensory awareness, the eyes, the ears, the touch, the um, the that which we use to know that we're in the here now. The senses that are experiencing what is uh, being sensually experienced right here, right now. And when we're thinking about over there, back then, away off into the future, then that's just merely conceptualizations in mind. Not real. Okay. Now, uh, way back when, in very, very primitive times, um, little animals, all of them, every animal that exists that we know of, even down to the cellular level, has an instinct built in, the self-preservation instinct, that even a tick, if you pull it off the dog and you have it in your hand, on your finger, it will try to run away and hide. 
Okay. If mosquitoes or uh, geckos, we got geckos on the wall. And if you put your hands next to the gecko within five or six inches and then start moving it, that gecko will see your hand and then he'll run away. That That is the fear response that every animal has, but animals do that fear response based upon something that comes in from their sensory awareness. A big hand is bigger than the, uh, that kind of thing. Or maybe a, a lion is chasing us, something like this. But as humans have evolved uh, into the kind of thought systems and also the um, uh, <clears throat> the civilization that we've created, then in fact, you can imagine that the jungles way back in ancient history were really dangerous, that humanity was always in the sense of danger, that there were many animals that were bigger than us. And so, in fact, we needed tools to protect ourselves. That if it, that it's just me and the lion, then I'm meat. I'm I'm much. But it's me, the spear, and the lion. Now we've got a possibility of survival, right? And so, basically, that tool set winds up being the village, and then the city. And we have always used that instinct, but we've used also the higher part of the mind to find ways of getting out of the fear, but we haven't really dealt directly with the fear. In other words, humans have found a way to live a life that's relatively secure and not dangerous. And yet all of that mechanism of fear is still in operation, except that now we become afraid of things that are not dangerous at all. An example of that would be a letter comes in the mail that's the electric bill and we open it up and it's gigantuan. We don't like that. And so we put it on the table. And now every time we walk by that envelope and see that envelope, we feel afraid. Why? It's just an, an envelope. It's not going to hurt you. Isn't that amazing that we become afraid of an envelope sitting on a table? Or maybe the, the envelope triggers a fear and then all kinds of thoughts will come about it. And so uh, what's necessary is for us to use these three things to remember to look at what we're doing and then make a change. To come out of those uh, kinds of thoughts that have been very, uh, let us say, well-worn, well-used habit forms, things that just pile upon pile upon pile and upon pile. We just pile things on. In fact, everybody's got a PhD in dukkha, just piled higher and deeper. Would you say addictions fall into that place as far as like, I, I, for some reason, addictions seem to me like, they're much deeper behavioral patterns, or is it thought generated as well? Like the thought generates the addiction. Uh, actually, we can look at a, an addiction is uh, basically the mistake of saying, uh, if you don't succeed, try, try again. Or uh, it's been attributed to Einstein, but Einstein says he didn't say it. And that is, is that insanity, the definition of sanity, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a new result. Right. 
And yet, and that's exactly what we do. So people go into the Mahasi method, keep doing the same thing that they've been doing before, only now they're doing it intensely and they're not getting any new results. We just go into meditation and just think about all the thoughts that we've been having all along, rather than making the change. That in fact, that quality of change is something that uh, needs to be looked at. For one thing, one of the primary teachings of the Buddha is the teaching of Anicca. You probably heard that, Anicca Dukkha Anatta. What that means is that everything is in turmoil. Everything is in flux. Another way of looking at it is, is that there are basic cycles and things go in cycles. But at any one point in that cycle, if the person doesn't recognize the cycle that they're in, then when they're in the south part of the cycle, they don't like it when it starts to move west. But if you stand back and just recognize, oh, there's a north, south, east, west, there's a north, south, east, west, and it goes into a circle. And then eventually, even what north is changes, like the North Star, not the same North Star that we had centuries ago. But everything is in changing, but everything goes in giant circles. And when we can't see these giant circles, when we're caught in the loop, that means that we don't like it when it moves from this to that to this to that without recognizing that everything is in cycle. So. Uh, one of the expressions that I use to help students see this is the expression of sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Give yourself credit for being able to see the cycle rather than hating being caught in the cycle. That's another attitude change is to just be in that cycle and recognize that you're in a cycle. And sometimes you feel up and sometimes you feel down and sometimes you feel good and sometimes you feel bad and it's all just in a cycle. The question is, is can you start paying attention to that whole cycle? And when you begin to cycle down, you can say, okay, now I can make a change and turn that around and come back up. I don't have to go down into that rat hole. I don't have to go down that sewer. I can make a change here. And so that's one's right effort. And in the Buddha's language, um, that is to remove unwholesome thoughts from the mind and put wholesome thoughts in. Also in the Anapanasati Sutra, it's referred to as gladdening the mind or perking up the mind or brightening the mind. That, that by perking it up and gladdening the mind, what we're actually doing is beginning to modify and change our attitude slightly. That when we were little kids, we were all born being dependent upon adults. No child can be born and be abandoned by his mom and expect to survive even a day or two. That's humans. Where alligators, they can lay their eggs in the sand and then go back into the water and let the eggs take care of themselves. Or turtles do that. Eggs from the bird a little bit different. And that is, is that they need to feed the babies after they hatch, but only for a short time. And as soon as the babies have some feathers off, they fly away and they're on their own. So humans though, take a long, long time to get ourselves up, each one of us, into where we can take care of ourselves. 
that in fact, in the very, very old days, it would have been like the age of three or four. Then it went up about the age of six as civilization got started. And in fact, that's why we put kids in school today is because in the old days, six years old were good enough to go out into the fields to pick cotton or whatever. All right. And so this whole idea of a slow childhood leaves us with a lingering, lingering old childhood of dependency and being not able to take care of ourselves. And so what we do is we begin to feel like a victim, that we're a victim to our environment. We begin to get the idea that we're a victim of our environment, which is actually in severe cases would be known as being paranoid. What is paranoia? The thing that everything's out to get me. Well, actually, that's just because you don't have the skills to manage whatever it is is happening. And so whatever it is is happening, you see is dangerous, whether it's really dangerous or not. So what we have to do is start to rewire the mind that we had from childhood to recognize that we're not dependent, that we are capable, that I am not a victim of my own mind. I am not a victim of my own feelings. And yet most people are. And we say it in our language. For instance, when somebody says, I am frustrated, or I am sad, or I am sorry, or I hate this, you know, this language is very common. And what that means is, is that when I say I am angry, that means the anger itself is now bigger and more important than the low me. I become the anger. Without people recognizing that uh, in that case, the, the I, whatever the I is, is all over the place. It's not a permanent thing. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Everything is temporary. Things arise and they pass away, including selfishness. And when selfishness arises, that's an indication of dukkha. In other words, I'm not getting my way. I want and I don't get. Then, in fact, the classic definition is of dukkha is wanting something you don't have. And so people go into meditation. Okay, Ron. So when we go into meditation, that means that now we can begin to see those thoughts. We, and what is meditation? That means that we're remembering to look. Remember to look and to change. Remember to look and to change. Shanti, uh, Ditti. And I forgot the poly word for <laughs> right effort. But anyway, uh, taking the right effort to make the change over and over and over again. And as we do these three things over and over and over again, they begin to build a skill. And that new skill that we're developing is actually uh, in the Pali Sama Sankapa, which is now the right attitude, the attitude that I can do this. The attitude of, oh, I can throw these hindrances out of my mind. Oh, I can do this. I can have an easy life. That's the right attitude. Is the, that like finding an authority within yourself that you are the, the king of, of everything, of yourself? For me, this always made sense because 
I would never look for any teacher or anything like that just because of that note that that for some reason it always made sense that I have the authority to make the change. There is no teaching. There is nothing. It's it's within you that you have to keep looking. Uh, yes and no. Mm -hmm. The no part is, is that many people don't know what to look for. And so they wallow around in ignorance looking for the wrong thing when in fact if they knew what to do, and that's what these skills developments are doing. In other words, you can have uh, an artisan, maybe he's a sculptor, uses chisels and rocks. But if that artisan doesn't have chisels and hammers, he can't do sculpture. If he's got rocks but no chisels and hammers, and then there's the possibility that he's got chisels and hammers and no rock. Right? And so, um basically what makes him a sculptor is not the chisels and the rock what makes him a sculptor is, is that he keeps going chisel and rock and chisel and rock and chisel and rock and starts looking at what he's doing and starts being careful about what he's doing and he can turn that uh, piece of rock into a beautiful piece of sculpture Basically, that's what the human needs to do. He turn, he starts off as a rock that needs some chiseling done. Take some of the weight off. Find some of the things that are hidden within that rock. And we wind up with a beautiful piece of sculpture. But the, but the point is, is that uh, normally that rock does not have the skills of the sculpture, nor does he have the chisels and the hammers. So uh, the whole point then of the Sangha is to help each other see the chiseling and the hammering, but each one of us has to do the work ourselves. But we need help with doing that. This is what the point was about the Buddha. When he talked about it, he said that this is an old path that I have rediscovered. It's always been here and people in the past have seen that. And he said that people in the future will also see it for themselves. But it's a whole lot easier for it to be pointed out by someone who can see it rather than every one of us stumbling around whole generations at a time with not one person being able to figure it out. But we could pass it down from generation to generation, which is exactly what the, uh, the Bhikkhu Sangha has been doing since the time of the Buddha. Sometimes more effectively than others. In the sense that um, the Mahasi method is all hammer, no chisel. So that no hammer, all chisel, or all, uh, all hammer, no chisel means that all we can do is just beat on that rock without actually being able to sculpt it. The chisel is where we can take the pieces off. To whack that piece off, that unwholesome thought, throw it out in the mind right now. So this is the practice of Anapanasati, is that the most important quality is that gladdening the mind. Coming back over and over and over again. Never mind, start again. Never mind, start again. Oh, so what? Yeah, I feel bad. Never mind. And keep coming back to the wholesome thoughts.
Go ahead. As I, as I found, like, as I'm chiseling, I, I found out that I've been, like, removing some parts that you had, like, certain attachment to, like, you could have built up this whole identity, this whole persona of yourself into this habits or things that you do in your life. And then as you start chiseling those things away, you start to lose yourself. So how does one see these things and not get frustrated with himself that he keeps losing these good parts that he thought he had about himself, but now he sees them as something that was just a false illusion? As a, right. Okay. Well, the old habit of frustrations over lost comes into play, and you're telling me now that you can see that frustration. The question is, can you see it in time so that the thoughts of frustrations don't actually make you feel frustrated? That you can throw that frustrating thought out now. Yeah, because oh, I what like- if I did it wrong? What if I did this? What if isms? What about this? What if this? You know, what if I lose that? Then what will happen? Those are just more what if isms. I think it, it all escalates if, if you, as you said, if you allow these thoughts to continue to build up, you, you build them. You can either build them in a positive way or you can build them, you, you say, unwholesome way. And if you. Um, I was going to say I was going to say about something about Dark Knight of the Soul because I found that essentially as I kept chipping the Mahasi method, it would throw me into these really dark states because I was digging in shit, as you would call it. And as you're digging mm-hmm. in shit and you're not seeing anything good about yourself, you, I'm not this, I'm not that, not this, not that. As you're seeing that, you 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 get frustrated with yourself. Then you ask yourself the question, "What am I in the end? What is me?" And as you answer that question, "What is you?" you see that there's nothing left and you're left with this blank blank page. So what do you do with that blank page at that moment? Well, that's the whole point then. That means that you can relax because there's nothing to it. Hmm. Well, what's really going on though is is that you want there to be something. You want to be something. All right. There's actually a better way of looking at it, and that is uh, uh, in Sutta number two in the Saba Asava Sutta, the Buddha talks about how looking at who am I in the present and what I'll become, or looking at who was I in the past. So dealing in the past and the future, or even in the present moment of who am I, is fraught with dangers. That that's not the right question to ask. And so naturally you're going to become frustrated with who am I as a question. Why? Because the reality is, is that whoever you are, you're still a moving target. So anything that you point saying that's who you are, well, you've already moved over there. <laughs> you're not the, your moving target. <laughs> All right. So uh, this this quality then is better. Uh, a little bit better question would be to look at it from the perspective of who I am not. I am not these feelings. I am not this body. I am not this memory system and all of these memories. I am not even perception itself, the process of seeing what I think reality is rather than actually taking sensory input and and experiencing reality, I have to make sense out of it. That making sense out of it is what we call the process of perception, naming it rather than just allowing it to come in. 
All right. And then the last one on it is, is that the one that the Christians get most confused about it, they think that I am consciousness itself. So when they go to heaven, it's the soul that goes to heaven. Okay, you heard that, right? There's a soul that goes to heaven. Except that when you think of the soul, you don't think of the soul as having eyes because the soul doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have ears. It doesn't have any sensory awareness. So if a soul goes to heaven, how will that soul even know that it's in heaven unless it has some sort of consciousness that I am in heaven? Well, what's the evidence? Well, they say they have golden paved streets. Well, Okay, if they have golden paved streets, how do you know that they're golden? If you can't see them, right? So this is the whole point about the consciousness is, is that you're not the consciousness either. But what you are is a product of those things after they're put together. Just like uh, a, a car when it's spread all over the yard, the engine's over there, the seats are over there, the steering wheel's in the tree, you know, the, the rats eating the wiring and all of that kind of stuff. You don't have transportation, which was the original intention of the car. You have to put all that stuff back together into a system, and then you have transportation. Right? So another example is uh, uh, an old-style uh, wind-up alarm clock. That clock will function when it's put together, but if you take it apart and pull all the gears all around, then you don't have any ticking. You have to put it together, and then when you have the, the clock together, you have the ticking and you have the hand movement. But guess what? The hand itself does not know about the clock. The hand just thinks, I am the hand. Okay, so that's the way that we have to understand it is, is that who you are is a merely a product of a process of the mind that's based upon this body and this feeling and this perception and this uh, 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 consciousness and all of these memories together. These, by the way, these five things that I've just mentioned are called the five aggregates. And the most important quality of the teaching of these five aggregates is that there is no self in there. A lot of people mistake it and say, I am the body. In fact, look at how many industries are in business. Look how many different industries and businesses there are that capitalize on people who believe that they are the body. An example of that is toothpaste. People will buy toothpaste because these are my teeth and I were told to take care of them. All right. So you have the clothing industry, the fashion industry, the shoe industry, the uh, handbag industry. You have the cosmetic industry. You have the weightlifting industry. You have the sports industry. All of this is because of people making the delusion that I am the body. In fact, you're not the body. And the body changes. If I am the body, then when all the cells of that five-year-old died, why didn't that person die? He didn't. Those cells were replaced. Something new came in. But we fail to recognize that changing process, and so we don't recognize that I am a process. We recognize that I am this, that, or the other thing, which is part of that process. So... That's the way of looking at it is to look at it from the situation. I am not. I am not the feelings. I am not angry. I see anger. 
if there's a me in there, it's the one who observes the anger, not the one who is angry. So there's even a third level. And that third level is, is to stop paying attention to the self and all and start paying attention to the outcome of the self. And that is dukkha. That's where the Buddha comes in. That, and when he talks about it, he doesn't talk about it in the sense of dukkha is some sort of concept. No, he looks at it in the sense of this is dukkha right here. This is dukkha and this is the cause of dukkha. This is the end of dukkha. That's the way that we look at it is, is that I'm experiencing, I see the dukkha in the mind right now, which means I woke up and I looked. Now it's time to make a change, to gladden the mind, to come out of it right then and there. Over and over and over again, we practice that. And then the attitude begins to change from the attitude of a loser who needs somebody else's help into the winner of knowing that you've got this wired. You can handle this. You can take care of anything. The Buddha was known as a lion. This is the lion's attitude. The lion is the one who is the boss of his own life. Most people, when they're talking to the boss, if the boss comes up and starts asking him a question, we immediately go into, he's the bigger and I'm the little. He's the big guy and I'm the little guy. It's hard to come up to the point that, no, I'm just as good as he is. And in fact, because you're a Dhamma dude, you're actually better than he is. He may be a boss, but that's his delusion. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying about authority. Once you see the authority within yourself, the, the, you cannot be a victim anymore in any situation, in, in talking to your boss and in Dhamma, in, in life, in, in anything. Mm -hmm. But in fact, if you're a victim, what we're a victim to is that anxiety. That's what we're victims of. It's our own feelings. And we're a victim of our feelings because we don't know them very well. And, by, and when we know them, that means that we can make good friends with them. And as we make good friends with our feelings, we recognize that, hey, these feelings, these, this survival instinct has kept me alive my whole life. That it, that it made me breathe at night when I wasn't conscious. It made the heart beat. So this, is this instinct of survival has uh, benefits, but it's overburdened, that it's actually primitive. The survival instincts of the human were developed in the situation of a jungle. And we don't live in a jungle anymore. We live in a society now. And yet that primitive mechanism keeps going off in the sense of false positives, left, right, and center. We think this is dangerous and that's dangerous when things are not dangerous at all. Just because we don't pay the, the electric bill doesn't mean that I'm going to die. The electric company just comes uh, the power off. Well, maybe I can start to use my night vision now. Develop some skills here. I don't need power. Tapping into the neighbors. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. If you need to read something, go over to the neighbor's house with your book and read under their light. Then, in fact, this is something quite interesting about what Suan Mok. Marcus is a familiar uh, that in the really old days when I was there in the 1980s, even the city of Chaya didn't have electric power. 
The only power that was in the entire area was a new generator that was at Watso and Milk that was maintained by the monks and a, 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 a layman and a power was donated. But the generator only ran for a short period of time, starting a little after sundown, about six or seven in the evening, and it would run till about nine or ten, which means that's the only time that you had electric fans. That was the only time you had any evening time, and that would be so that the monks could get back to their cooties and get settled in and then lights out. But all day long, no electric power. I found that amazingly difficult in the beginning and amazingly freeing over time. But we have become completely dependent upon electric power. Here on the island, the power goes off on a regular basis. And every time the power goes off, I have to check how I feel about the power goes off because ultimately it's okay that the power goes off. So the computers are down. So this is down. So what? I'm okay. But in our society, oh, you don't pay that electric bill. That's a kind of sentence of death. And we become afraid about this, that, and the other thing to where, in fact, this is not even worthy of fear from a wise position. But it is worthy of fear from a child's position. And so we're going to change that attitude. And how do we change it? Very slowly over time, by keep talking ourselves into feeling good. Talking ourselves into feeling good over and over and over and over again. Everything's all right. Everything is fine. There are no worries. There are no troubles. This moment is good enough. And we start to develop satisfaction. But that satisfaction doesn't come so long as there's still fear. That fear is the basic emotion. And we're not going to really get anywhere until we deal with the fear. And you probably heard that the Buddha is actually quite big on fearlessness. There's suttas about it. But in fact, in one of the suttas, he actually goes off into one of these haunted, dangerous places. It was actually at, close to Bodh Gaya because it was a swamp. A, you know, uh, deep southern swamps with swamp gas and crazy animals and all that kind of stuff. And humans don't like to go there. And then the humans eventually get the idea that that place is haunted because it was naturally dangerous anyway. And the only people who are still there are the ones who died there. And so the Buddha would go to these places and hang out with the idea that when fear arose, he was just going to stand there and examine the fear. Because the reality is, is that right now there are no snakes crawling up my leg. Reality is, is that there really is nothing right here, right now that is dangerous other than my thought about this is a dangerous place. And then we have places like, have you ever heard the name of Bayagiri? It's uh, uh, Achan Cha's uh, lineage, what, in Northern California. The word uh, Abaya, the word Baya is actually the word for fear in the Pali. And Abaya means not fear. And Giri is actually the word for hill. So it would be then translated possibly wrongly as fearless mountain. But in English, the word fearlessness has a different quality than what we're looking for. That fearlessness is actually what the warrior would have as he goes into battle. 
is called courage. In other words, he's going to get on top of his fear and go do what he wants to do anyway. All right. So he looks and appears fearless, but what is happening actually is a war within that he's getting over his fear. But we're looking at it from a different perspective, and that is, is that we're looking for the words not fearless, but safe and secure. Safe and secure are nurturing words. Everything is okay. Everything is safe. Now, that's a better definition of the word abaya. So we could actually be translated as safe mountain or secure mountain rather than fearless mountain. Fearless has, has a too tough a quality to it that, that we don't need so much. In other words, the, uh, the warrior who is truly uh, secure and safe and comfortable is not putting on his armor, getting ready to go to battle. Because the guy that he's going to go to battle with is actually his friend. And there's nothing dangerous here. That would be secure. And so this is the way we want to start looking at our environment is, is that it's actually a safe and secure place, at least the environment that you're in right now. I mean, look at around the room that you're in and you recognize there's actually no snakes on the floor crawling up your leg. There's no alligators. Everything is actually OK right now. And so we have to give ourselves that little uh, hit, that little juice, that little sugar of saying everything really is okay right now. Everything is safe. It's not dangerous. And we start working with that over and over and over again, and we start developing that as a new habit of everything is safe, everything's secure, rather than having the thoughts of what about this and what about that going wrong? The what about is the reality is everything is safe. And so we keep looking at it and seeing, yeah, the reality is, is that things are safe. Nothing to do and no place to go. And right now everything's okay. And so we keep playing that one over and over and over and over again. And pretty soon we begin to feel that way. We do feel safe. And so now we're practicing that in our meditation. And as we walk into the office and there's the uh, uh, the boss with an angry expression on his face. And most people will bring that fear back up. What if what if he's angry at me? What have I done wrong? What if this? What is that? But in fact, possibly the best way to see the boss when he's angry like that is to just to say, hi, boss, I'm so happy to see you. And give him a big smile. He may change his expression right then. But if we become afraid because we see danger in the face of the boss, then now we're going to be in that one down victim's position. He's going to be the one on top. So we have to remember, have to wake up, wake up and smell the coffee, wake up and recognize that, hey, I can handle this. What, angry boss? I've seen angry bosses before. Been there, done that. I don't know what to do with an angry boss. I smile at him. For me, fear, as far as I've been, I've been doing martial arts most of my life, and I've been in, in, in confrontational situations, it caused me to face certain fear. And then the fear is usually, what if I get injured? And then eventually, in, in, uh, sometimes I would get injured, and then the injury wouldn't even be so bad. I would be even more relaxed when I got injured. Because 
the fear itself of the injury was already bigger than the injury itself. Like you, 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 you break an arm, you break a leg, it, it, a bit of pain here and there is fine. But the fear of it is what it actually causes the suffering. That's when I realized, oh, the mind is what causes the suffering, really. It's yes, not the injury exactly. itself. Not the injury itself. I can itself. almost laugh through a lot of pain nowadays because I'm like, hey, here's the mind making, making the situation bigger than it is. All right. Well, I would say this that there is a long old tradition in various countries in Asia of the various people who were engaged in some sort of martial activities become monks and become very good ones very quickly simply because of this issue of learning two skills one is to deal with this moment uh, by putting aside the fear and doing what's needed to be done that in fact, if the uh, if the old martial artist, the master, is surrounded by young thugs about to beat him up, if he becomes afraid of them, they will beat him up. But if he remembers all of his skills one instant at a time, he will use that skill one instant at a time, and within three to five seconds, he's mastered all of them. All right. So that sort of martial artist then breaks really good material for meditation because he's already been developing the skill of to be here now because in fact if he is in a uh, combat situation hand-to-hand weapons no weapons whatever like that if all of a sudden he starts to think about the argument that he had with his girlfriend he's going to get his face smashed in <laughs> yeah not possible to do that to be honest. You can't really think about something when the confrontation is going on. <laughs> exactly. You got to pay attention to what's going on right now. So that's a skill that's developed. So if you can uh, use that skill now to remember to start playing dodgeball or start playing dodge with these um, big fists of anxiety that keep getting into your face so that you can learn to dodge those things, move out of the way, make a change. Don't let them hit you. Do some blocking. Do some uh, some foot shuffle so that you can lean and you know judicial so that you can just lean out of the way. That's the way. So the an- the anger of the face of the boss then doesn't hit us, but the anger of the boss is coming right direction right here, and so we move over here so that we we miss it. There's no me there to get hit. But this is a skill that needs to be practiced, not just with martial arts, but with verbal slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, rather than fist and uh, nunchucks and uh, sigh and, you know, the whole list of things. So we're we're, actually what we're saying is, is that we're developing the skill of learning to play dodgeball with with all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that come our way from the outside by dealing with those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that we keep throwing at ourselves on the inside. And when we get the inside straightened out, then we can deal with the outside handsomely. 
because when we see that angry boss, it's not the angry boss that we're looking at across the room. It's the angry boss we've got in our head that we're afraid of. It's our perception of him, not him himself. But in fact, he may say when you smile at him, he may say, oh, I'm just tired. And he wasn't angry at all. That we thought he was angry because of our perception of he's probably angry at me because of blah blah. Well, what about isms, you see? <laughs> so this is the actual practice of Anapanasati, and a lot of people think that all oh, meditation is done squatting on the floor. But no, that squatting on the floor time, which is actually quite valuable, useful, and wholesome when it's done correctly, is developing the very skills that we need so that we can go into work and dodge all the slings and arrows of angry bosses and whatnot. And so it's a two-step operation. But if we say, oh, if I just sit in meditation, it will develop all the skills that I need right then and there so that now everything will be okay out in the world. No, that's not going to happen. What we're having to do is being in that meditation time is to build up the skills that we now need to put into practice. So uh, actually, when I say put into practice, that means that we need to perform these skills. We practice the skills in silence or in uh, uh, seclusion. And then when we get out in the world, we perform them. And when we get really good at performing them, then we can just play with them. So that all the world is just to play, like uh, the Hindus say, Leela, or as Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and every one of us is an actor. Have you ever heard that? Yes. I, I forgot what uh, one of the plays that comes out of. Uh, Hamlet, pardon? Maybe Hamlet. Ah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff is in Hamlet. Me think the lady doth protest too much is in Hamlet. <laughs> Some of his best lines are in Hamlet, to be or to not be. So I would believe that one too. Um, so all the world's a stage and each one of oh, us. Oh, no, it's wrong. It's uh, as you like it. There you go. And as you like as, it. As you like it. Okay. All right. So in all the world's stage and each one of us as players, there is one more point to it. And that is, is that not only we are players on the stage, but we are reading our script. What is the script we're reading? The script that we learned of who I am in childhood. And so the whole quality then is to close the book, stop reading the script and start paying attention to what's going on on the stage. And pretty soon you can recognize, hey, wait a minute, all these people on the stage are just reading their own script and I don't really belong here. So I can go down and sit in the audience, which is, by the way, pretty empty in this theater. <laughs> and I've got a lot of room here in the audience because everybody that I know is on stage reading a script. So this is another way of looking at it is, is that we can learn to stop reading the script of the mind and start reprogramming it so that we can just enjoy the show, which means now that we're in sensory input, we're taking in new data rather than being on stage reading old data. 
Ben Ratter, what do you think about, um, you know, Bill Murray, the actor? Bill, yes, Bill Murray. Yeah. I know him. Yeah, he he um he said a quote. I mean, he's a pretty chill guy. Um, he said, "This is not a dress rehearsal. This is your life." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Everything is just as it is. This is life, and uh, in fact. We could say that if childhood is the dress rehearsal for the adult's life, why is it that we never come out of being children and still think that we're in rehearsal where there's going to be somebody who's going to stop the show and yell at us for doing it wrong? Where, in fact, in, um, uh, in theater, you've probably heard the expression, the show must go on. In other words, it doesn't matter what tragedy befalls the actor. He can just drop dead on the stage and have all the other actors just make it part of the show that they're picking up the dead body and throwing it out and then on with the show. But no, we have the idea that everything is a dress rehearsal and everything is important. But when we're adults, that means that we have the attitude. Of, and by the way, that dress rehearsal is the quality of you're not ready yet. You're still a victim. Dress rehearsal is a bunch of victims getting together, proving themselves that they're not victims anymore, that they're winners, and they can do the show. So this is not a dress rehearsal, as Bill Murray says. This is it. And guess what? There's nobody there standing there with a script. You can ad-lib your way through life now. And you can become chill. There's no reason to continue to do it the old way. We have to make a change. I think when we, we when when you say child, you mean like a child as you've been structured by authority to do this, to do that. But I've been having this longing to go back to this childhood mindset of worry free. Nothing is a problem. I want to just play around with my friends. I want to go slide slide of the slides. I want to enjoy the snow. That's what I've been okay. trying, longing for to go back to almost feels like. Okay. Well, the the things that you mentioned for the longing is actually m more, uh, or let us say later things. Mm -hmm. The reality of the situation is, is that when an infant is born, he is nurtured and taken care of. If he doesn't, that child will die. And even after two days of birth, a new infant, when he does his first poopy after three or two or three days, everybody is so, so happy to see that big yellow turd come out because that shows that the digestive system is working. As opposed to the, uh, the child getting fatter and fatter and fatter after five or six or eight days and he hasn't taken a crap yet. That's really dangerous, right? And so every mommy, and in fact, I've seen women take that turd, put it in the, um, a, a napkin and show it off to their friends. <laughs> but that 16-year-old boy or that boy that grows up that laid that turd, now he takes a dump in the living room floor and what's the people going to do? They're not going to be proud of his new turd. Not at all. No. Something happens in our childhood that changes us and that happens at about the age of six when we're put to work. You're told to go to school. You're told to pick up your clothes, do your homework, put down your cell phone, do what you're told to do. 
and we lose that very young childhood playfulness that we had at the age of three and four. How can we maintain that feeling of three and four when mommy is now putting us to work? She's nurturing us a little bit, but that nurturing now has a whole lot of you got to go do this, that and the other thing in order to get my nurturing. It becomes conditional love now. And what you're longing for is to go back to that unconditional love time. Back to the nurturing away from the critical mom, uh, mom. So moms either are going to be critical. Like do your homework. I'm going to check it or they're going to be nurturing. I love you so much. And somewhere in another along the way, mom gets more and more critical and less and less nurturing. And we miss that. Well, guess what? Now you, you recognize that you can say that that means that it's my job to go back and give me the nurturing that I lost in childhood and resented losing. I can go give that self. I could give that to myself. I could start nurturing my mind now. Nurture the mind rather than being critical. The criticism, by the way, is the what ifism. What if this and what if that? And you got to go do this. You got to go do that. And you can change that. And do, oh no. You're okay. I'll do it all for you. Everything is all right. Just relax. Just enjoy yourself. What, you want to go skiing? Go skiing. Okay. Enjoy. Go enjoy your life. You don't have to long for it. And not have it. That whenever the thought comes up about longing for it, you can say, oh, I've got it right now. Yeah, I can just take a deep breath and just feel nurtured. Feel free. That's exactly what it's all about, is learning to go back to that early stage of childhood to where the whole world was a wonder. The whole world was just one more toy to play with. But things have not gotten important. The critical mind is what makes things important. The reality is there's nothing important. Very little is a, is a matter of life or death. Almost never is it a matter of life or death, and yet the fear tells us that everything is a matter of life and death. And so now that you know about that longing for that nurturing state of mind, you can go nurture yourself. Bring that back. Go let yourself feel like you were two years old again. Taking that doll apart or taking that toy apart, taking that alarm clock apart without any care or worries that you'll have, you'll be able to get it back together again. That's not the issue. The issue is I'm having fun taking it apart. The critical mind is there. Oh, you got to put it back together again. No, you don't. You know what I'm realizing? I'm almost like tearing up right now because I realized I've been nurturing myself with certain addictions through that throughout this time, but. That's what I was, was longing for. Even when you said longing, that word longing is that's what I was longing for when I'm I'm, I'm engaging in some sort of these rituals and, 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 and habits of addictions. Is that nurturing? Is that what you're looking for? Constant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So nurture yourself. Give yourself that juicy ice cream of the mind. Make yourself feel pleasure. In fact, 
intentional pressure, intentionally let yourself feel really good, really satisfied, which is also freedom from fear. That we're, that of the little child who is being nurtured is not afraid. The child who is afraid is the one who is drawing his ABCs, worried that somebody's going to say he's doing it wrong. And that's where the fear comes in. The fear of every child in the Western world is retrained from the fear of real danger into the fear of the artificial dangers of our society. And so everything that you wind up being afraid of now is not actually a matter of life or death anymore. And so you don't have to be afraid if you wake up to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad we got into this because like, as uh, I think this was the missing part is the, as you said, Mahasi method is just looking. So I was able to look at it all the time, but I did not know how to replace it. So this addiction, addiction, addiction issue kept staying and staying because I couldn't replace it with something else. But now that I can take, take my own charge and replace it from within with my own nurture, I can, I can move past this addictions i don't want to say get over it because there's nothing to get over it it's just see well in this moment you can get over it yeah long term we're not interested in we're just wanting to get rid of it right this very minute that's where we're developing the skill if you have the the idea oh i've got to get rid of this long term which is way that the masi method then we're not making any progress the progress is made when you say, never mind about the future. Right now, I don't have to feel worried. Right now, I don't have to feel anxious. Never mind about the future. Let me at least develop the skill right now. And then maybe 10 minutes from now, I can do it again, over and over and over again. This needs to be practiced. Why? Because you have been practicing being unhappy since you were about three or four years old. Practicing doing what you were told to do. Practicing trying to fit in. And now you don't have to worry about fitting in. In fact, you can recognize, oh, that's thing, that thing called society is really not worth fitting into. Why should I stand on stage trying to read the, the script as best I can to get it right in order to fit in on this crowded stage? <laughs> Why don't I just close this book and go sit down and enjoy the show? Well, we were taught that we had to participate when we were kids. That's the whole point about the critical mind state. And so we remain critically minded of ourselves. And you have actual now permission to go nourish yourself. Everything's really okay. The things are not nearly as desperate as people make out. So I'm glad that you've gotten some benefit out of this, Carl. This has been good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, now I'm I'm tapping into, I can feel like a lot of pressure easing off the body, but I understand that this is moment to moment that I have to ease that pressure because that pressure comes back as soon as they say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I can stop now. You can go back to the old way and it's not. Mm-hmm. You have to find yourself again. Hmm. Yeah, just remember it right now, you're okay. 
right now to remember the sati, look at what we're doing and make a change. Right now you're okay. And if you wake up, you remember to wake up and you're already having a mindful of wholesome thoughts and you can congratulate yourself. Yeah, I'm already okay. <laughs> Nothing to do here. <laughs> and so we keep practicing this over and over again, these skills. The skill actually we refer to as the skill of just a little bit of satisfaction. To get yourself into a small state of satisfaction, this is okay, I can handle this. And then that state of satisfaction as a skill will start to grow. So you become more and more and more satisfied. To the point of yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay, this is satisfying. And then that mellows out too. It's all a process. So practicing satisfaction, everything is all right, everything is fine, no worries. Well, Carl, I hope to see you again. Let's go ahead yeah. and finish this up and, and we can talk some more. There's a lot more to it, but this is the the folks, the point of turning things around. The turning things around is to nurture yourself, to remember that you're already okay. You don't have to do anything to be okay. You're already okay. You can feel safe and secure, comfortable, and satisfied. So, Marcus, do you have anything to add? No, I'm just enjoying the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Carl, we'll see you soon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Can, you can call uh, on on Skype. I think you already know how uh, this uh, this group that we're in now, the UK group, um, you can actually start a call in that too, um, but maybe nobody will see it because it's got too many people and because of that Skype doesn't automatically send out notices. But you can get, uh, you can find the, the, uh, the Skype name of Damarato. And then you can call any time in the daytime. And I'm really glad to meet you. Yeah, me Got too. a lot of friends. Today we haven't talked about it much, but eventually I want to talk to you about the Sangha, which is the third item of the Triple Gem. The Western Buddhists are really interested in the Buddha and the Dhamma. But the real show is in the Sangha. That's the community of wise people, the community of the nobles. That's when things really uh, happen. I, I actually, before I even talk to you right now, I wasn't past a couple sanghas because the way I make sangha, I'm going to relate to my martial arts again. When we're doing sparring, you have to, you have three levels of sparring. You have to spar somebody better than you, somebody on your level, and then somebody who's, who's 
much worse than you. So you can actually pass on the knowledge and you can learn a lot. You have like pointers from somebody who's better than you. Then you have competitive levels of somebody who's on the same level with you. And then you can pass on the knowledge who's a, a, a beginner. As you I said. know. I know. That's, I've been a beginner. I've had the tar beat out of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's how they that. Here's here's actually a story that I'll tell you in that regard. Uh, in the martial arts group that I was in, don't give him much details. A guy came into the class and was introduced by the uh, uh, Senjai uh, as having just gotten out of prison. And he hadn't been doing any martial arts for like five years or so. And so the deal was, is that the uh, 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 the karate master would let him back in, but he had to start all over again. With the white belt and then the yellow belt and then the green belt and the blue belt and the brown belt and then the black belt again. OK, so all of that. And so I was in the stage there of, uh, of just getting a brown belt. And this guy had gone through it. So, well, the brown belts is where you're actually doing some physical activity. Right. And this guy uh, uh, in, in the process of, of learning this kata, this guy threw his left arm down. And when I hit it, it felt like I was hitting a brick wall. And I learned a lesson right there. You've got to make your arm a brick wall. If you don't, it's going to get broken if it's a soft piece of meat. <laughs> he taught me a lesson right there. And he almost broke my arm. And all he did is just put it down. And I did all the breaking by hitting him. <laughs> and I will never forget that. And in fact, I think I've, I've uh, uh, kept myself from having broken bones by letting the muscles do the work rather than the bone. It's better to get bruised than a broken bone. And so that's uh, the idea of, and, and that, by the way, is in the Goji Rai. You probably heard of that method of uh, making the arms very strong. Some of the films that I've seen, they do it like this. It's like... And breathe out and then breathe in and then breathe out like that. All of the muscles of the arm are completely just as tough and as strong as you can make them. Okay, that's the uh, the hard part, the go part of the Jew, go Jew, the hard salt. And the heart is really, really hard. I know because this guy nearly broke my arm. <laughs> yeah. I had because I'd been playing with all of the other students, you know, and everybody's arms or whatever soft. And it was literally like I hit my I, I uh, with with my right arm hitting his left arm. That it was like hitting a tree. It was like hitting a brick or a brick wall with it. It was that hard. I mean, it was such a surprise. And so that's one of the examples of um, uh, an advanced student teaching a young student a lesson. That was a major lesson for me. Yeah. So, uh, I very much appreciate that we can uh, work with and use this skill of martial arts as kind of a base for your Anapanasati practice, as opposed to the Mahasi method, because the Mahasi method keeps people in the victim's position 
to where the martial arts training, like I've just demonstrated, that's a lion. That's tough. You got to get that stuff going and you know that you can get it going. And so that whole attitude about the martial arts. Have you ever heard of Masushi? I mean, Masashi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. There's a clear example of it. That warrior. He's, a, he's an interesting story, but the end of it, the story was is that he used the skills of his martial arts to practice uh, the, the Zen meditation, and he got very quick results because he had already developed so many of the skills that the beginning meditator will need. Like when you get knocked down, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you get right back in the game. But the losers will lay in the mud for a while. And so um, that's actually congratulations on that. That's a good skill to come into meditation practice with is the knowledge that you can handle it. You can handle the pain. You can handle this. There's nothing to it. You can nurture yourself. I think my favorite quote, quote is from Lao Tzu. He says, like, even if, I'm, if, it, even if the mountain falls on my head, I will go through this practice, even if the mountain fall, if the, even if the mountains were to fall on my head, that that's always stuck with me. Even if the mountains have to fall on my head, that's mm-hmm. the kind of attitude. Right, that's an attitude, isn't it? Because real mountains don't fall on real people. But the idea, yeah. that that concept of yeah, I can handle anything. So you can handle this, and you now you're going to learn to handle it with nurturing. Excellent. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really great call, and I hope to see you again, Carl. Yeah, it was a blast. See you. Take care, guys. Okay, bye-bye.